Today on Blue 58, after their Week 6 win over the Bears, the Packers are shuffling the deck chairs on defense again, cutting a corner they just signed. But here's a thought related to that. What if this defense is actually good? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Bit of a surprising development on the Packers roster today. We're saying goodbye to Quinton Dunbar and hello to Aaron Adeoye. I hope I got his name right. Adeoye. They moved on pretty quickly from Quinton Dunbar. They must have really liked what they saw from Rasul Douglas. Bit of a a surprise, I think. I think it's fair to call that a surprise. Uh, given the Packers' lack of depth at corner, given the, the just in general, prior to injuries, given the injuries to Jair Alexander and Kevin King, given that even when healthy, Kevin King hasn't been great, why not keep another guy around who's been in, you know, 60-plus NFL games and has played pretty decent football at times? You know, that's for us to just wonder about, I guess, because uh, I thought that would have been uh, something they'd be interested in. But instead, uh, we get to say goodbye to Quentin Dunbar. We never knew you in an actual game. And hello to Aaron Adeoye. Uh, so Adeoye, going to say it as many times as it takes to continue to try to get it as right as we can. But big dude here, 6'6", 250 pound outside linebacker, edge rusher type. What else do we know about him? Well, in terms of his physical attributes, literally nothing else. He has No pro day and was not invited to the combine way back in the spring of 2016. And you'll see why when I tell you his backstory. Adeoye played four years of college basketball at four different universities, Ball State, John A. Logan College, Western Kentucky, and Southeastern or Southeast Missouri State. After four years of playing on the hardwood, he switched over to football for his fifth year of college eligibility and played one season for Southeast Missouri State and wasn't particularly outstanding, but is still evidently a pretty good athlete. Not a good enough athlete to make it straight to the NFL, though, because after his last season of college football, the 2015-2016 season, he ends up going undrafted in 2016 in the spring. Spent that fall out of football. But in 2017, he jumped back into the spotlight with the Selena Liberty of the Champions Indoor Football League in Salina, Kansas. If you don't know where that is, I'm not even going to bother telling you where because it really doesn't matter. Apologies to our many, many listeners in Salina. If you're from Salina or listening there now, give me a shout out. I have family in Kansas. Good place. Not exactly a bustling football metropolis, though. Your big question, though, what is the Champions Indoor Football League? From Wikipedia, they say the CIFL is a professional indoor American football league created in 2014 out of the merger between the Champions Professional Indoor Football League and the Lone Star Football League, plus one team from the Indoor Football League and two expansion teams. Players are paid between $75 and $300 per game before taxes with no other benefits. So this is the fringes of professional football. Pretty far out on the fringe. Although head coach Matt LaFleur would say, well, maybe not quite that far out on the fringe. Why would he say that? Well, the Omaha Beef are in the Champions Indoor Football League, and that's where Matt LaFleur spent a little bit of time playing professional college football after his college career. The Selena Liberty play their home games in the Tony's Pizza Event Center, a 7,500-seat arena in Selena, Kansas. That's all you needed to know about the Champions Indoor Football League. Anyway, Adeoe goes on to play 2018 in the Spring League. And I say 2018 in some heavy air quotes there because the Spring League is or was, I don't know if it's still around, I I haven't checked lately, but it is the sort of thing that I follow from time to time. But 
Uh, they played in the spring, or he played in the spring league. This is a startup spring football league that plays scrimmages, basically, of guys that are fringe NFL players, former NFL players, basically just trying to get them some film so guys can be like this fella and end up back in the NFL or in the NFL at some point. In 2019, Adeoye played for the Birmingham Iron in the Alliance of American Football, a startup league as well that folded before its inaugural season even finished. From there, he jumped to the Baltimore Ravens practice squad in 2019, came back in 2020, and played one game for the Ravens, logging eight snaps on defense, eight snaps on special teams. But that was it for him. Back to the practice squad he went and never played another NFL game because he was released over the summer by the Ravens, had a brief stint with the New York Jets, and I do mean brief, eight days, August 23rd through August 31st. And now he lands in Green Bay. So what's his deal? Honestly, who knows? He's got some size, and he was a good enough athlete to play college basketball at four different schools. I'm guessing the athleticism isn't going to be the issue here. I'm guessing knowing how to play edge rusher in the NFL is going to be the issue. But big athletic guy, you got some pieces to work with there. But I'm wondering, transitioning into subject number two here, is the defense actually good Anyway, we've seen six games now, and outside of an absolute meltdown in week one that was not helped, I should add, in any way by the offense, the defense has been pretty solid. Now, understanding that a lot of defensive performance is a function of who you're playing at opposing quarterback, who the guy throwing the ball against you is going to be, the Packers, still adjusting for that, have, have played pretty well. And we should just run down the quarterbacks the Packers have played. They, they open with Jameis Winston. They get Jared Goff. They get a combination of Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance. They get the corpse of Ben Roethlisberger. They get Joe Burrow, who played pretty well, but still made some bad mistakes. And then they play Justin Fields. Now, I wouldn't say so far, outside of Jameis Winston having the day of his life, the Packers have really gotten a good quarterback performance from anybody they've played against. And that's part of the reason that I think the defense looks pretty good. But, but, still, the Packers have played pretty well on defense. The outcomes have been good. They've held opposing teams to 22 points or less or fewer in four of six games so far. They've gotten some really good individual performances. The secondary, the state of the secondary, hasn't been a huge factor so far. Kenny Clark is playing as well as we've ever seen him. And part of that, I think, is because he's playing more time on the end of the line than we've ever seen from him before, not lining up exclusively as a nose tackle so much anymore. Dean Lowry is playing well. Devondre Campbell is playing well, perhaps the best season of his career. That is not inconsiderable. And yes, sure, the Packers have not played exactly stud offenses so far, but still, it's hard to complain about the results. I don't feel like when the Packers are having breakdowns on defense, it's a result of them just either not knowing what's coming or not deploying tactics that make sense. I think, honestly, when they get beat on defense, it's just that they're going, they're getting beat. And in 2021, 2021, you're going to get beat. That's how the game is set up. Defenses are set up here to get beat by offenses. That's just the way it is. Offenses have every advantage. Rules are slanted to help the offense. The penalties are slanted to hurt the defense more than the offense. The key positions on 
offense, quarterback, guys catching the football, are protected to a degree that there's very little the the opposing defense can do to try to slow them down in a way that doesn't get penalized. And yet, in those circumstances, the Packers have held their opponents to, outside of week one, 17, 28, 17, 22, and 14 points. Three games in the teens, folks. That's not too bad. I mean, compare that to Mike Penton's last team or last go round with the with the Packers. They did hold hold players or hold teams in the teens fairly regularly too. But how confident did you really feel in those performances? I realize confidence isn't super high on the defense right now, but it seems like it's headed in the right direction. And kind of building on what we've said before about the Packers getting pieces back and improving as they get healthier, it's possible the Packers are not yet playing their best football on defense either. I still don't know what to make of the defense, but we still got to point out when things are going well, and things have been going pretty well lately. We're going to get a real look at how things shake out over the the month of November, really. You got the Chiefs in early November, the Seahawks, who could have Russell Wilson back by then, the Vikings, who are at least competent, if not spectacular, at quarterback, and the Rams, who have Matt Stafford playing some reinvigorated football. We'll figure it out then. For now, things are looking pretty good. Got a few questions that I wanted to share with you uh, from listeners and readers to close out today's episode. Kind of a grab bag of topics here, but three questions um, from listeners, and then uh, then we'll call it good on today's episode. First question from Ray Say Pay Bay in the um, Power Sweep Discord, which you should join by doing or by becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash the Power Sweep gets you access to the Discord server as well as a couple other things as well. Uh, it's a good time. Fun to hang out. Fun to talk Packers with people from all around the world. He asked, what do you think uh, about letting the score dictate your play style? Do you think there's any flaws in the reasoning to let the score dictate your play style? Specifically speaking to the idea of abandoning the run when you fall down multiple scores. Just curious as to your thoughts on this topic. So I think the Packers have historically been pretty guilty of this, so I can see why you'd want an answer on this. You can see why you'd be wondering what the thinking is there. So I'm going to give you a classic John answer here. It depends. A more specific answer is sometimes you have to. Sometimes you just have to abandon your play style. You're not going to run your way back into a game if uh, if you're down 25 points. Think back to, say, the 2016 NFC Championship game. Packers are playing the Falcons in Atlanta and just getting worked up one side of the field and down the other. The Packers needed to try to win a shootout in that game, and they were not equipped to do so on offense or defense. But what wasn't going to get them back into that game was running the ball. They were not going to effectively run the ball and get back into that game. But if you've got a solid defense, if you've got an offense that you're confident in that can win multiple ways, I think overall I am against saying, oh, shoot, we're behind. We got to throw now. We've seen a perfect example of this this season already. Packers 49ers on Sunday night football. 49ers go down 17 points, and normally that's a situation you'd say, well, hold on, we're down big, Jimmy, here's the ball, throws back into the game. But did they change their approach? Not really. Now, the first scoring drive was a bunch of passing because they got the ball back with a minute to go, 
before halftime, but the next drive, they're back to balance. Seven runs, or seven passes, six runs. The next scoring drive, seven passes, three runs. So not quite as balanced, but generally speaking, the 49ers just kept playing their standard offense. They didn't let the Packers take them out of what they wanted to do. And that, I think, is really the thrust of um, what I'm getting at here. You don't want your opponent to dictate the terms to you. You always, until it's absolutely inconceivable, want to be playing the game on your own terms. Because as soon as you let the other team dictate what you're going to do in the game, either by getting way ahead or by just shutting down one thing so specifically that you just stop doing it, I think you still, or I think you take yourself out of the game if you let them do that. Sure, there are going to be situations where one thing is just working so well, you got to do that, or one thing is working so poorly, you can't do it, or you just get too far behind that you can't justify doing, staying as balanced as you can or trying different things. You just got to do the one thing and try to hope for the best. But generally speaking, I think you want to have all of your options out there and available. Koftek in our Discord server is up next. This question a bit more general, but in two Packers games, the booth has talked about the difference in rules between college and NFL and how it can be hard to change the way you play sometimes. Does the NFL try to influence the college rules to make it easier for the players by making it more like NFL rules? Good question. I can see why you'd be thinking that a couple situations where that's come up. Um, have related to, uh, I can think of two examples in in particular. Well, I guess we should just restrict it to one here. Um, Just to not bog down the question, but there was a a play, it was either in the Packers game or the game that came immediately after the Packers game, where uh, there was an illegal man downfield for a team that wasn't the Packers. This is a really specific example, as you can tell. Uh, It was a run-pass option, and the quarterback had held the ball on the run option too long, waiting to see if the defense was going to commit to the run. And in the course of doing that, um, an offensive lineman got way downfield. And as soon as the quarterback pulled the ball and threw it, it was an immediate flag for an eligible man downfield. Because the rule in the NFL, I think, is that you can only be a yard downfield as you're run blocking before you become ineligible to be downfield. You, you can't be confusing the defense by just having everybody run down the field and, and be blocking when the ball's in the air and things like that. That's not the same at the college level. The NFL doesn't care, though, what, the, what college is doing. Uh, the NFL is concerned about the NFL, and they're concerned about running a game that they think makes the most sense. And there are practical reasons that they are not super concerned with um, – with how college football's rules operate. Because think how many more moving parts there are in college football that you've got to sort out for competitive balance than there are in the NFL. There are literally hundreds of top-end college football programs. You would, you would say Division I or you know, football bowl subdivision, whatever you want to call it, championship subdivision. I don't, I don't know. You know what I'm saying. The, the top, top end of college football, even at that level, there are hundreds of teams, all with an interest of, in trying to make the game as, as safe as possible. Now, when the NFL, or as safe and fair as possible, I should say, that's really the concern here, trying to make things fair, trying to have consistent rules enforced the same way across the board. If they want to make a change at that level, you've got to do it through the NCAA, and you've got to get all of those stakeholders on board. In the NFL, all you've got to do is convince 32 teams 
or even a majority of those 32 teams that something is a good idea. The NFL is pri- and, the, and the NFL can't even get all those 32 teams on board in those situations more often than not to make common sense fixes about like challenges and overtime and how things are, are you know, officiated and, and carried out on the field. The NFL struggles to make decisions like that. I don't think they could really be bothered to try to sort things out at the NFL level. I think what the NFL hopes for most is that their style of play sort of filters down to the the college level, but I think they're kind of out of luck there too because more often than not, I think the opposite ends up happening. Things end up filtering up to the NFL level because, again, the competitive questions that college teams have to answer are so much different than than what the NFL has. The NFL has a lot more – well, the NFL has a a big benefit in scarcity. There are – so few NFL teams and so few roster spots, they can be a lot more picky about the players that they uh, that they take and, and get on their team and use to run their, their philosophies. In the NFL or in the NCAA in college football, there's, again, hundreds and hundreds of teams. And the very best guys can go, what, 90 at a time to a big power program like, say, Alabama or another SEC school. And a lot of times, other schools just end up dealing with the scraps. So they've got to sort out how they win in whatever way they can. And that's why you end up running weird offenses like, you know, the triple option or any of the things that we talk about in in, um, Blood, Sweat, and Chalk this spring and summer. Any of those sorts of things that um, are present at the college level that aren't so present in the NFL are mainly because of what what the players are able to run what players you have that can execute your schemes, what schemes will fit your players. The NFL doesn't have that problem. They're, they can pick from all the players and fit exactly what they want into their system. So the NFL isn't really super concerned with trying to influence college football in that way. The NFL is probably more concerned with um, how the NFL or how the college game is played affecting what they do at the NFL level. Um, certain offenses, certain defenses filtering up to the NFL and uh, NFL teams having to react accordingly. Final question here from Serb Packer writing all the way in from uh, from Europe today. Uh, what's the reason for poor officiating quality throughout the NFL? The fact that refs aren't professionals, i.e. full-time employees in the NFL, it also seems like the guidelines have been given this year to discourage teams from using red flags, that is, challenges. It's like they're being told everything is... Uh, that's been given is unlikely to change. So just deal with it. Good questions here on officiating, something that's come up a lot here through the first six Packers games so far. Let's answer the second one first. This may be conspiracy. This may be tinfoil hat type stuff, but I think I'm convinced that the NFL is 100% downplaying challenges. They do not want coaches to challenge plays. Plays are overturned so infrequently now that it almost is just a waste of a timeout to even bother. Unless something is so immediately apparent in its incorrectness, you shouldn't even bother. If things are close at all, don't even throw that flag. Just take what you've been given. I think that's the implicit or maybe explicit message the NFL is trying to send here because challenges slow down the game. They kind of undermine the authority of the refs on the field. It just ends up being a headache for for teams to to deal with. As to the quality of the officiating, I think there are a few things at play here. And most of them, unfortunately, are out of the ref's control. And this is why I'm 
while being frustrated with the officiating on a near weekly basis, I'm still sympathetic to refs for a few reasons. It's not because refs aren't professionals. Let's dismiss that right away because these are things that play people should be able to get right. You know, you watch a college football game. You, you know, I shouldn't even say college. You watch a high school football game. Every ref out there is an amateur. This is a part-time gig for them at best. But they can competently officiate a game. At least, at the very least, they're not making mistakes on the regular that are worse than what we're seeing on Sundays. But there are mistakes being made. And why does it look like the officiating quality is so poor in the NFL? First and most obviously because it is. But for four other reasons, um, there, are, there are a lot of things that, that can make the officiating quality. Here are, I guess I should say, four other reasons. All of them, in my opinion, out of the control of the refs. First, the NFL rule book is huge. I'd encourage you, if you haven't, to look up both the NFL rule book and the NFL game operations manual. Check them out. Google them. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be able to figure it out. The rule book is so dense and filled with examples, exceptions, plus the actual text of the rules itself. It's easy to see why things might be inconsistently interpreted. It's easy to see why mistakes could get made because the sheer weight of information they have to deal with is so, I guess, onerous that it would almost be more surprising if guys didn't make mistakes. I think a second reason that officiating quality looks so poor is that we've been conditioned to think they can get everything right. Generally, I'm in favor of replay reviews, but using replay reviews has shown us in ultra high definition, super slow motion vision, exactly what goes on in an NFL play. And refs, do not have ultra-high-definition vision, and they do not have the benefit of officiating the game in super-slow motion. So a review shows us what they can get right, but it should also show us how hard it is to get everything right. And just the existence of having review in place kind of gives us idea that everything should be right or could be right if these guys were just competent. But they're human beings still, and the limits of what you can do even with replay still makes it impossible to get everything right. Thirdly, and related to the previous point, NFL broadcasts condition us to think that refs are stupid, and it consistently undermines the product on the field to a degree that is extremely frustrating with me. So think about what we see here. A play happens, it's controversial. A coach is steaming mad on the sideline, so he throws his red flag. We go into the broadcast booth, super slow motion replay, Guy's getting blown up, helmet-to-helmet hit. Does he maintain possession? Stuff like that. What do the broadcasts do? It's not just the two guys, three guys that are in the booth. What happens? Ah, we got to bring in our rules expert. And our rules experts are almost always saying, here's what they're getting wrong on the field. Here's why this was the bad call. Here's why, even if they correct this, they should have gotten it right in the first place. The implicit message here is the guys on the field aren't doing the correct job. The broadcasts are telling us that the refs are dumb and that you're right at home for thinking they're dumb. That's a problem. And it's not a problem that the refs can really control. Finally, as we've kind of talked about with with the second point here, it's really hard to be a ref. 
you're dealing with 22 highly athletic NFL players moving at absurd rates of speed, going all different directions all the time, with 70,000 fans screaming at you. I mean, how many of us could get all the calls right in those situations? Very few, I would imagine. I certainly could. Could not. Couldn't is what I was going to say. I certainly couldn't. I do not want to be a ref because I know I'd be terrible at it. That's why I do this instead. I can be reasonably good at this. I couldn't officiate an NFL game competently. It's really, really hard to do. But, but, even acknowledging that all of these things are making refs' jobs more difficult, making us think that their job is easier than it should be, the refing should still be better in two areas. First, the NFL has to figure out how many calls it wants over the course of a game. And what I mean by that is it's got to decide what's a penalty and what isn't. What are we really going to spend time officiating? Holding, offensive or defensive, pass interference, player safety type stuff? Which of those really needs to be a penalty and to what degree? I personally really enjoyed last year when the NFL basically said, hey, don't call holding, holding anymore unless a guy gets absolutely necktied out there on the field. I thought it sped up the game. I thought it made a more visually appealing game. I thought it basically just allowed offensive lines to play how they wanted to play to begin with. It was great. But that was seemingly a one-time thing. The NFL's got to decide what needs to be called and when. Because it seems like some days you get five penalties between the two teams, and some days you get 15. And related to that, the second thing that they really need to improve is consistency. What is a penalty and what isn't? Okay, if you're going to call holding, what's a hold and what isn't? If you're going to call defensive holding, what's a hold and what isn't? Last year's NFC Championship game is a perfect example. And this is a, in a, in a technique that the Legion of Boom Seahawks employed to absolute perfection. What they decided, Seattle this is, is we're just going to be extremely physical all the time. Every single play, we're going to be grabbing and pushing and shoving, beating up receivers as they go down the field. And we're going to say, all right, if you want to call defensive holding every single play, that's what you're going to have to do because we're going to do it every single play. And we're going to dare you to call it. And when you do call it, we're going to be in your face, screaming at you, making you wish that you hadn't called it. That is exactly what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did to the Packers. They held and pushed and shoved on every single play and they got away with it. And if you're going to be able to get away with it, you're stupid to not do it. And it worked to the tune of one interception in a key situation late in the first half that led to the Brady bomb over uh, Kevin King. And it resulted in a three and out. Both times, Alan Lazard was blatantly held. There was a hand inside his shoulder pads, tugging at the neck of his jersey. And yet it was not called. But Kevin King gets called. Not for a hold. He didn't get called for holding. Look it up. Look this up. I've said this before, but look it up. Kevin King did not get called for holding. He did not get called 
for grabbing Tyler Johnson and pulling on his undershirt, that picture that you always see, that gift that you always see, he got called for pass interference when the ball was in the air. What's a penalty? What is it? Can we rely on the refs to make consistent calls? That's the sort of thing that we need to have figured out in the NFL, and that's what's going to make officiating better and feel better in general. So I've got for you on this episode. I appreciate you listening in. I'd appreciate it even more if you would share this episode and all the ones like it with someone you think would enjoy it as well. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation we're having around the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.